Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to the podcast True Believers, featuring Sarah Ferguson and Carrie O'Brien in conversation with Lee Sales, recorded live at the 2016 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Thank you all so much for joining us at this session. My name's Lee Sales. Um, I just will cross my fingers for all of you on the edges that it doesn't start to <laughs> rain again. Um, this session is True Believers. It's a delight to be here uh, to lead this conversation with our two wonderful panellists today. And they need no introduction, really, but let me just remind you of the scale of their achievements. Sarah Ferguson is the... <laughs> Sarah Ferguson is the host of the ABC's Four Quarters program. She's one of Australia's most acclaimed investigative journalists, having won four Walkley Awards, Australia's highest journalism honour, including the top prize, the Gold Walkley, for her story, A Bloody Business. (laughs) She has other awards too numerous to mention, uh, and her documentaries and her reports are always appointment viewing, must-watch viewing. Sarah's predecessor in the Four Corners role is Kerry O'Brien, who is, of course, one of Australia's best-known journalists with six Walkley Awards to his name. (laughs) I'm older. I've got time, I've got time. (laughs) Including a gold and a Walkley for outstanding leadership. They're going to duke it out later. It's going to be a wrestling match by the end. In a 50-year career, Kerry has covered just about every story you could possibly think of for several networks. He was the inaugural host of Late Line for six years and then edit- editor and presenter of 7.30 Report for 15 years uh, before he moved to Four Corners and now he's a local up here. Um, so please make them welcome. <laughs> Kerry and Sarah are both here today because among their many achievements, as if that's not enough, now they've each written a book as well. Um, Kerry is the author of Keating, based on many, many hours of interviews with the former Australian Prime Minister, Paul Keating, uh, whom he's known for 40 years. And the book was prompted by Kerry's four-part interview series with Paul Keating in 2013 for the ABC. And Sarah has written The Killing Season Uncut, a fascinating behind-the-scenes look at the conception and execution of her three-part documentary series about the Rudd-Gillard-Rudd years in office. Um, I wanted to start a little bit by talking about the psychology of politics. There's a wonderful book called What It Takes by an American author, Richard Ben Kramer. It was about the 1988 US presidential election. And rather than looking at the politics of that election, he looked at the psychology of the candidates and what is it that makes you, in a, in a nation of 250 million people, not only think that you personally could become president, but also that you should be the president. What do you think are the qualities that drive people to those very top levels of politics, Kerry? I think it varies, Lee. Um Uh, And it ranges from uh, the greatest altruism uh, to the most um, uh, banal and vain interest in leadership in in power for power's sake. So all shades in between. I think uh, um, I still can't... I still don't feel I can speak with great authority about Paul Keating despite despite the fact that I virtually lived with him for two years. Uh, And we ended up with an 800-page book uh, in part... Uh, which which dealt in part with the whole issue of power and what attracted him to power from such an early age. And I don't think he understands why, and I don't. In his case, uh, there was the sense that his mother had enormous ambition for him. And you hear that story repeated often. Uh, Hawke has a similar story, so do others. Um, uh, There was the fact that he grew up within uh, a strong labour culture, uh, with that, with the kind of working class tradition that his father represented, but there was something innate in him, uh, I think, that drew him to power, and I'm prepared to give him the benefit of the doubt that it wasn't power for power's sake. Uh, he talks about how he was influenced by Churchill. He saw Churchill as this big-brained individual who was prepared and had the courage and the clarity to draw a line in the sand on the big moral issue of his time. Uh, which was the threat posed by Hitler. And he says, uh, I saw this guy and what he stood for and what drove him, and if that's if public service is the business he's in, that's the business I want to be in. Um, 
John Howard, um, perhaps there are similarities in his story and I'm sure some differences and you could put yourself right across the span. Uh, Barack Obama, um, how much was he driven by the fact that he was a, uh, a black man in a country still riven by racism but with a big brain? Uh, how much of his desire to reach the top was driven by that? So a multitude of reasons. In, in the case of Keating, you point out that you don't think he was motivated by power for power's sake, and perhaps evidence of that is how much Keating likes thinking about and talking about policy. Mm. And, uh, and, you know, nobody would, nobody would uh, deny him that. Uh, and he still does, you can say, uh, today, as you can see, and, and uh, maybe when John Howard's involved, he's driven by more than a desire to talk about policy. Uh, but, uh, but mostly when he intervenes in public debate today, it is about an issue of policy that's caught his eye. And, uh, and his view was that good policy makes for good politics. And I'm sure that wasn't always the case, but as a broad, as a broad touchstone, uh, I think uh, fantastic. And what a pity that's not the case today. We'll talk a bit about um, today a bit later, but Sarah, let me bring in you because your documentary is, of course, a really interesting psychological study in some ways of those um, two people. What do you think generally is the sort of psychological makeup that drives people into these careers? I think what Kerry said, Lee, uh, is so interesting. Uh, given that Kerry spent such a long time, and I'll try and talk to, to all of the wings because we're quite elongated here, um, what Kerry said about the complexity, notwithstanding the fact that he had spent such a long time with Paul Keating, I had much the same, much the same feeling with uh, Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard, that although I spent many, many, many hours, and I don't know who gets the bigger medal for 14 <laughs> hours with Kevin Rudd or... Well, I, I enjoyed a lot of mine. <laughs> <laughs> and so did I. <laughs> I. I like your point about complexity, because in the end... There isn't a simple answer because these are richly complex people. And I would agree that in the case of Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard, it wasn't power for power's sake in their cases, but they are complex people who are very good at putting up many, many layers of, of barriers between you and a really deep understanding. So no matter how much time and how much effort you put into pulling, slowly peeling away the layers, you'll never, I think, in the case of these people, get to the absolute true heart. That said, I interestingly, and I think this is a good thing, that, and I actually spoke to Kevin Rudd about this the other day in the wake of the Malcolm Turnbull uh, decision for Kevin Rudd's candidacy at the UN, he said that he was driven to want that job from a vocation. And the best thing that was ever said about Kevin Rudd, from his staff, loyal, of course, but the, the thing they said about him was that every day he he came to work wanting to make Australia a better place. And I think it's true of Julia Gillard. Now, it doesn't mean a lot of very complex things didn't get woven into that picture, but I think there is truth in that. The thi one of the things that strikes you, of course, when you spend time with people who achieve high political office, especially the highest, is the incredible resilience it takes to build themselves to that position. And when you talk to people about the rise of Rudd and the rise of Gillard, that's the thing they talk about. There were other candidates in that era who could have led the party, clearly other candidates. But in Rudd's case in particular, no one else drove his candidacy the way that Kevin Rudd did. Lachlan Harris used to say, his young press secretary, that Kevin Rudd would turn up to someone trying to get onto the Bulkham Hills, a regional council in New South Wales, or a, um, a branch meeting in Wangaratta, that he worried the whole party, he went after them for months and months and years and years with what Lachlan Harris described as a superhuman effort, and that in the end, I think Bob Carr said this, he, he just made it inevitable. So that drive is a, a spectacular thing, and I think in the case of, certainly in the case of Keating and Rudd and Gillard, that you cannot spend any time with them without being aware of the saliency of that extraordinary drive. Now, breaking it down is complex. <laughs> you mentioned that uh, it's you can peel back layer after layer after layer and it's quite hard to get to the motivation. Um, do you think that people, once they reach those top jobs, um, let their guard down ever with anyone? Very rarely. And usually it's a moment of accident, I think. Um, Kerry can talk about Keating, but with I think the, the, the business of being in power means that you create you create safety around yourself. And in the case of Kevin Rudd, for example, he's someone who doesn't trust people at all. It's very, very hard to get even a couple of layers into Kevin Rudd's trust. And for, for my 
for my sake, for the sake of the documentary, I had to find a way to get at least a couple of uh, ladders up the snake and ladders towards trust from Kevin Rudd. I think they don't ever completely let the guard down. Just occasionally, partly through questioning and disarming them, you can get very close round the last corner of the labyrinth. But that doesn't, that doesn't mean that, that behind closed doors or within the ranks of their party, their government or their opposition, that there aren't real friendships forged. Of course there are. Um, but uh, I would think most, if not all, of the politicians within those friendships would also know of the strong possibility, if not likelihood, that over the course of a long political career, many of those friendships will be shattered. Uh, and that's partly the nature of politics, particularly in a democracy. Uh, everyone wants to be a dictator's friend, but uh, other than those who are in prison. But... Uh, but Trust is another, another matter, and Keating says on trust, uh, and this was one of the things that, uh, that he says he learned at the feet of, he would say, across the desk from uh, Jack Lang, uh, and that was, uh, when a person speaks to you, Paul, or Mr Keating, uh, look behind what they're saying for the real meaning. And, uh, and Keating took that as one of his tenets, and he would have done that all the time, but at the same time, he made friendships... Uh, within that political structure, and in the case of, uh, of Hawke, a famous one, uh, where they went from a famous friendship to, uh, to um, a state of permanent enemies. Uh, politics can be a transient thing, friendships in politics, trust in politics, but if you have no trust at all, uh, and you have to be able to work out advisors, you know, whose advice do you trust? These are all parts of the complexity. Uh, and I think it, what, what it all adds up to uh, is, that, is that living life at the top of politics, regardless of what richness there may be around you, it has to still be a very lonely business because the person who wears the responsibility, even in the collegiate environment of a cabinet, uh, is the prime minister or the leader of the party. You notice, I notice that they use the word friendship in a different way. It is, it's, Kerry is absolutely right to say that there are true friendships, but the way politicians talk about friendship is different. The currency of friendship in politics is, is a different coin, I think, to the ones that we use, that most of us have private spaces where our true friendships live, and politicians are much more... Uh, those, I think those barriers are much more movable. They use their weddings and networking events in completely different ways, I think, to normal people. And when you hear them talk about friends, remember the night that Kevin Rudd won uh, the leadership... Sorry, won the federal election in 2007, he stood up and referred to Mark Arbib as his great friend. <laughs> Mark Arbib was the General Secretary of New South Wales Labor, crucial to Rudd getting the leadership, stopped Gillard getting it, and, of course, was the person deeply involved in removing Rudd, and he refers to him as his great friend, and he was not his great friend at the time, and he went on to destroy him or play a role in destroying him. Malcolm Turnbull, I noticed, does the same thing. Often when asked a question about someone, if it's particularly a tricky question, the kind of question that Lee likes to ask, he'll reply <laughs> by saying, he's my great friend. And he uses that phrase all the time and it's just a way of suggesting that somehow the relationship is secure, safe and proper when it's nothing of the kind. Or perhaps sometimes to box the person in, mm, I wonder. Indeed. Um, Kerry, can you remember when you first met Keaton? I can. Uh, it was in the non-members bar of the old Parliament House. It was a, a small <laughs> Parliament and a small bar. <laughs> and uh, um, was that a bar that women weren't allowed in then? <laughs> no, it wasn't. It was once, wasn't it? Uh, it wasn't if if it was ever, if the non-members bar was ever a bar that didn't allow women, it was a long time before I joined. Just, just checking. Uh, no, that would have... No, in fact, some of, some of the more memorable moments in my time had... had women were definitely at the bar. <laughs> um, so uh, he had just... Um, he was brought in by a guy named Bob Sorby, who was a, a journalist uh, who was actually Rex Connor's press secretary, and he had got to know Keating because... Rex Connor was one of his classic kind of mentors. He doesn't necessarily like the word mentor, but Rex was one of those older minds that Keating saw value in. And uh, his interest in Rex Connor, and he, I think he did have a genuine affection for him, but his real interest in Rex Connor uh, was that he wanted to suck out of Rex Connor's brains uh, 
those things that he thought would be useful to him that Rex had to offer. And there was a pattern with Keating of this, which is one of the things I found fascinating about him, that from a very, very early age, he was looking for people to learn from. You know, the saying, you can't put an old head on young shoulders, Keating was trying to do that. He was looking at all these people, he called it distilled wisdom, the wisdom of people who had lived a life and who had achieved in particular ways and had distilled this knowledge and wisdom which he then came along and took the vacuum cleaner to. But uh, Bob Sorby uh, brought him down to the non-members bar uh, to introduce to a few of us, uh, those who'd been long-term there already knew him, I was new to the game. Uh, and a few weeks later, uh, and he sort of, he had that classic swagger even then, he was only about 29 <laughs> or 30. And uh, a few weeks later, Gough Whitlam, um, made him a junior minister uh, and that unfortunately for Keating was only three or four weeks before they were dismissed and in fact there is a story which Keating denies that when Gough came back uh, from the lodge after uh, he'd been sacked by uh, Sir John Kerr at Government House and he stopped off at the lodge for a steak and to have a quick confab with a few of his senior advisers and as he strode back across King's Hall in the old parliament he walked past Keating and Keating said um, how's it going, Goff? And Goff said, Keating, you're sacked. <laughs> and kept walking, leaving an ashen-faced young minister in his wake. So that's, that's where I met him. And, uh, and then when I worked, uh, I worked for Goff uh, in the last five or six months of his um, leadership of the Labor Party after they'd lost. And Keating was in and out of his office then, and then I worked for Lionel Bowen, who was uh, deputy leader of the Labor Party after Gough went to Bill Hayden. And, uh, and Keating, again, Bowen was another mentor of Keating's, and so Keating was in and out of his office. I got to know him that way. We're talking a little bit about trust. Did you have to, given, given your long association um, with Keating, was there any work involved with you in convincing him to trust you to do the, the series? Oh, look, Lee, there was a certain... I mean, there wasn't much either of us in terms of, in terms of his work, you know, his uh, public life and mine. There wasn't much really that either of us... Uh, could learn about the... I mean, there was enough, put it this way, there was enough for each of us to make a, to, to make a judgment about the process. I needed to convince myself about the, about the merit of... Not, not necessarily the merit, but about the practicality of producing uh, four strong hours of talking head television that were going to sustain an audience. Very hard to do that. Uh, and I had to gauge whether um, Keating, you know, for all the sort of rich and colourful vocabulary that the man has, uh, I had to make that assessment and uh, he, had to, he had to make his judgement about me. But we didn't have any kind of, um, can I really trust you, Kerry, or Paul, are you really up to us? Uh, this, we just, we came to the decision. I want to come back in a second to the process of, of making that show, but Sarah, while we're on trust, um, it was different for you because Rudd and Gillard were very wary. Tell us a little, a little bit about that. So it was a very difficult thing coming into this series because neither Rudd nor Gillard wanted the series to be made and nor, in particular, did the rest of the Labour Party. Now, Gillard had given a, a, a sort of half yes, but she refused to be interviewed by the journalist who started the series because he was a member of the press gallery. So Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard shared a huge distrust of the press gallery. They both felt, for different reasons, that the media had signed up to uh, support the other. Now, they weren't completely wrong about that, but they had both become very angry with the press gallery. And so the Labour Party didn't want the series to be made, and Rudd and Gillard had not signed up to take part. Rudd not at all, and Gillard only a small part. So winning their trust was the first and most important thing. And with... Julia Gillard, we got a, a big surprise the very first time we met her, which was in the Hilton Hotel in Sydney, and I went with my colleague, and fortunately, neither of us were from the press gallery, and that's why we were able to proceed at all. And what everyone says about Julia Gillard is that she's a person of great personal warmth, which is what I was expecting to see. And we got to the meeting room before her. She arrived, stood in the doorway, bristling with hostility, which was not what we had anticipated at all. And she took her seat and told us that we couldn't make the series if we didn't examine the role of the media in helping Rudd come back to the Prime Ministership. 
So she had a very strong view about, about how the media had performed, and she was very she was determined that she was going to try and dictate how this series was made in the same way that Rudd was. But winning trust with him is a completely different thing. Julia Gillard, the word used about her most often, as well as her warmth, is transactional. She's a transactional person. Rudd is a labile person. He wears his heart on his sleeve, and it's very tempting with Kevin Rudd to get drawn into managing his moods because he's an emotional person where the emotion is on the surface. And it's very important not to to win his trust, really, in the end, I, I based it on a series of conversations that were not about politics. So the fact that I wasn't in the press gallery helped, and all we talked about was history. And over a number of conversations in my back garden with me running around trying to find a little patch of mobile reception that worked, I had conversations with Kevin Rudd about English history, and somehow in there he decided that I was someone he could have a conversation with. A very weird way of forming a relationship, but one that worked with him. When you look at, when you read a book that works really well or you watch television programs that work really well like both of yours, as a viewer, often they seem like, well, this was just how it was meant to be. There weren't choices involved in the way that it was produced because it just seems so right what the end product is. But, of course, there are endless choices that have to be made and agonised over about the way to pull it together. Um, Sarah, if I can kick off with you, tell me a bit about how you conceptualised what the killing season would be like as a program. The simplest thing of all was that it had to be, it had to, everything in the series had to lead towards the leadership spill in 2010 and everything had to flow away from that. So that was the narrative arc of it. And we knew that once we had the pair of them, once we had Julia Gillard and Kevin Rudd together, that the screen would crackle because there is so much and remains so much tension between them that once they were there, it was going to be their relationship, much less than my relationship with them. If, although I needed to secure one, um, unlike Kerry, it was not about my relationship with them, it was about the two of them talking to each other. But you're right about decisions. You, as you say, you get a finished product, but there are thousands and thousands of decisions. But we, we knew also, because of the nature of this narrative, that it had to be told as a drama. So, in a way, really the opposite of Kerry's series, owing more to Netflix and uh, House of Cards and Borgen and all those fantastic TV series. And that meant that visually, again, the opposite. So, not just for, although the interviews were central to it, that we needed the narrative of the period um, intercut with us reconstructing the scenes of the period to make, to give this the drama that it needed to convey what was an extraordinarily um, compelling narrative based, as all great dramas are, I'm sad to say, on betrayal and ambition, because this is what this story was about. Do you think they realised, Sarah, both of them, that it only took one of them to say no and the whole series collapsed? Do you think they really knew that? I think they, there, was a con there was a contest in their minds, so they, they all, both of them, of course, wanted to know what the other was doing. Um, they were both concerned that the series was going to be made anyway. Now, my problem was that, again, because of that labile nature of Kevin Rudd and the, the danger of getting sucked into managing his mood, that it made me very cautious at first because I thought that he would pull out because he pulled out a number of times. Um, oddly, actually, he only started behaving badly, and it wasn't that badly. He only started behaving badly when gossip columnists started writing that he was behaving badly. There was, it was a relatively straightforward relationship until the back column in the Fin Review started saying that he was making unreasonable demands, when in fact their demands were reasonable and identical. But then he started pulling out. And there was a period in the middle of the interviews where I had to just accept that Rudd was going to stay and stop pussyfooting around. Tell us a little bit as well about, um, you know, you said you wanted it to feel like a drama. Um, how then do you devise the look of the show? Um, and tell us a bit about the use of, say, editing and music mm. to create that type of mood you're after. So we have music composed. Um, the thing about this series is it's edited very, very quickly. There are, there are more cuts in uh, an episode of The Killing Season than you'll find in most feature films. Um, except for one moment where we choose to slow it right down because the central question for me, so everything's leading towards the challenge, the question is, did Kevin Rudd's behaviour as Prime Minister, his management of the politics and the personal management, make that decision the right one or indeed inevitable? And we rejected the principles that those things were true when we started. We wanted to test them. 
but we slowed the narrative down because the person that we chose, who I think gave the purest picture, was the head of Treasury at the time, Ken Henry, who was that very rare thing in the recollection of this period, that is someone able to give an account without rancor, because there was so much rancor on both sides and coming down from the, from the two of them down into al almost everybody involved. So to find someone who could give an account that I thought was fair, but tough, but also reasonable and absent of rancor. So for the first time, we had a very long exchange between Ken Henry and myself to deliver what I thought was a reasonable account of, of Kevin Rudd. Kerry, you mentioned that you had to think really carefully about whether you could make interesting television out of it. Talk us through a little bit of that process that you went through in your head. Well, um, I had a couple of hours of, um, of um, unplugged conversation with Keating, uh, which covered some of the parameters, which was just us and a little tape recorder, uh, for me to make an evaluation of, of how strong it would work as a series. And let, let me start with this, Lee. Um, you and Sarah both know about the defensiveness that exists in television about what we fondly call the talking head. There are some uh, in our game who believe that if a talking head is on television for more than 20 seconds in a package or more than five or six minutes uh, sitting in a studio, that there is an enormous risk that the public's going to be bored by them. And I think that that is a distortion, really. Uh, and I don't think Keating is the only person who can command a camera for a reasonably long period of time and hold people's interest. They have to have something worthwhile and interesting to say for a start. Mm. They have to have some capacity to communicate. Mm. But nonetheless, uh, I thought uh, that, that this... I came to the view that this was worth four to five hours, covering the span of his life, not just going through the policy and the politics and the kind of chronology of it, but trying to get underneath the skin of the man to understand more about those issues, those kind of... those slightly more abstract questions of what is it about power that attracts him, what are the things that drive him, what are the things that put this strange insect called Paul Keating together. Uh, because he was, uh, you know, was and remains a very unusual person from his time and place. He came from, he came from the fibro um, bungalows of very working-class Bankstown uh, in the post-war years, uh, and there he was at 12 and 13 hearing classical music for the first time and immersing himself in it because he's, he becomes an instant captive to it. He sees an antique watch in a shop and it takes his eye and he spends two months' wages in his first six months on the job buying this antique watch. Uh, and it graduates to a guy with Christie's catalogues uh, before he's all that much older. He's taken by beauty. He's taken by perfection. He, he immerses himself in the philosophy of the years of, in, of the Enlightenment. Now, these are, these are odd things for... for for the culture that he came from. And I'm not saying by that that if you're working class, you can't appreciate classical music or antiques. That's bullshit. And that is elitism. But, uh, but nonetheless, th those things uh, attracted me to him. And I was as interested in talking about those things as I was about reliving the months leading up to his first and then his second challenge of, of Bob Hawke. So this was all going to take time. Television chews up time. I went to Mark Scott, uh, and I'd, I'd, uh, I had given Kate Tawney, who was the head of my department, the Department of News, and I'd given a, an outline of the series. And I said, just listen to some of what's on this tape, and then suggested she do the same with Mark. So when I sat down with Mark, he was prepped as to what he might expect and how the series would unfold. I say... I think four to five episodes, Mark, of an hour. He says, how about two? <laughs> uh, and we moved from there, from his two and my four to five, to three, and I then tacked onto it, and keep your mind open to four. <laughs> and, and that was how the contract read. Isn't, uh, isn't that how 7.30 used to work when you did too? <laughs> we never had the time for that kind of dialogue, Sarah. <laughs> can you, um, Kerry, can you do my next contract negotiation? <laughs> <laughs> so the bottom line, well, well uh, the, the, no, I'll tell you why I shouldn't be your negotiator. 
uh, because when they did finally agree that it was certainly worth four parts, I didn't get an extra cent for the fourth one. <laughs> yeah, scratch that. <laughs> so I was so mesmerised by getting that number four on, I forgot about the other bit. Um, so when Ben Hawke, and, and Ben was my uh, co-executive producer on the show, we did it as a co-production, my little outside company, Ben was there on the ABC's behalf. Now, Ben and I kind of meet in the middle uh, between the worthy end uh, and the tabloid end. Um, Ben's tabloid meets, meets worthy, I'm worthy meets tabloid. So we were meeting in the middle and Ben was there because he was there to keep my worthy end honest, to make sure that it stayed interesting. Uh, ben was sceptical about four, he was even a little bit worried about three. So we sat down for the first uh, recording with Keating and, uh, and it was, as you've seen it, if you saw the series, we, we recorded it chronologically. So the first episode was built around his early life. Uh, we walk out, and I knew I, I could see the impact it was having on Ben out of the corner of my eye as we did it, but as he could barely contain himself until we'd got outside and outside of Paul Keating's earshot, and he said, mate, mate, it's got to be four. <laughs> so, uh, so I said, well, Ben, um, I'll leave that to you. Uh, people know my attitude. Uh, if uh, if it's coming from you, it might have a bit, you know, uh, more currency. And so it was. He only had to show it the, the rough cut to the next person, and of course that's what happened. I actually still think it should have been five, but there you go. <laughs> you know, you were saying you wanted to get that sense of what makes Keating tick and the love of the music and whatnot. Um, one of the most memorable bits for me of um, those four episodes was when he talks about his grandmother and when someone loves you and believes in you mm. like that, what a difference it makes. How challenging was it to get Keating to talk on that level versus just going deep into the rabbit holes of policy? Oh, look, he's, he is a very personable guy, uh, genuinely engages in conversation. I think uh, the, the part of the key to understanding Keating and, and, and in the end to his success... Uh, is that I think he was driven very substantially by imagination and curiosity, the combination of those things, a very creative brain, somebody that a policymaker inside government would have absolutely thrilled to have mm. as their minister uh, because he, he wasn't just interested in having somebody present him with a policy which he would then work out uh, which of these elements are going to be practical and which of these elements are going to work politically. He engaged himself in the processes, I suspect, like few other ministers... Um, and, and so you only had to present something to him that was going to catch his interest to get him to respond. Uh, and, and he had thought about these things. I mean, he, he, part of his thinking, I, I, I'm sure Keating has at least as many, has had at least as many introspective moments as anybody else, but that doesn't make him a navel-gazer. Um, and I think, I think he did puzzle over the years about... Um, about who and what he was. He clearly had enormous love for his grandmother uh, to the extent that he just, he just dropped this in the interviews. I didn't know it beforehand. When we talked about his grandmother, he said, he said, I actually went to her grave recently. So she died when he was only 13. This was now a man of 70 saying this. Here he was, uh, 60 years later, still going to visit her grave. And I said... Why did you go? He said, I don't know. Uh, I guess just to tell her uh, that I was still there and that I'm still thinking of her. Now, that's a powerful impact. It, it's, a, it's such an interesting question, Lee, this, this question of uh, policy and personality, because very often politicians reproach the media for focusing too much on personality. I think it was Keating's complaint about the previous ABC series, Labour in Power, which documented Keating and Hawke in power, and Keating's complaint there was too much focus on personality and not on policy. Well, it was too much focus, he said, on the relationship between Hawke, yeah. he and Hawke and that he felt opportunities to look at the things that they had done went missing. And, of course, it was always going to be the case that Rudd and Gillard would complain that we were too focused on personality. But, of course, in these dramas, in Keating's and in ours, of course, it's policy that provide... You know, I was talking before about drama and Netflix. The plot points of this period are all policy. They're the mining... For, for me, it's the mining tax, the CPRS, all of those huge policy moments. 
but the personalities involved were so crucial to the way the politics unraveled that it was always going to have to be about personality. But it is, I think, and in Australia where uh, leadership is such a blood sport for the media, it's something that we were aware of all the time. But personality is absolutely fundamental. Of course it's it fundamental is. to... Yes, but they reject it. I mean, Gillard well. and Rudd would both say that we focus too much on their personalities. But my, my point is the same as yours, as if you can take the personality out of the politics. But I think one of the things that drives them a bit nuts, and yet they play the game themselves, is, is personality connected to polling. And, you know, the sort of leadership popularity stakes, which is, which is a part of modern... Uh, politics in the way it never was until about 30 years ago. Uh, there was a certain amount of polling, but not a lot. It was regarded as costly, and I don't even know that there were that many people who had the professional qualifications to do proper polling. Um, but it, it has now become such a feature of politics, and it becomes, it becomes, of course, a part of the political play inside parties and between parties, and that that is more often than not based around the personality of the two leaders. Right, but if you just imagine, just, what, just to, on that for one moment, remember this, the noxious influence of polling in Labor politics under Rudd and Gillard, when Kevin Rudd was removed in the leadership, he was ahead in the polls. Yes. Just but also, as a, for members of an, an audience or voters, what you care about is the story of human beings. And so you're only going to be interested in what they're doing if you have some level of investment I would have thought in the human story whether it's the implications yeah. of their policies or whether it's the people who are actually implementing them well I, look um, a part of what I was really pleased about with the series and, and we could have done more of it I know but um, and in fact there's been a criticism that Paul Keating didn't talk enough about his colleagues around that cabinet table and I'm happy to say pound for pound um, that cabinet that first cabinet of the Hawke-Keating years can certainly lay claim to having been pound for pound the most talented cabinet in Australian history. Now, people can argue that, and I'm, not, I, I'm in no position to say it as a fact. I certainly believe they can lay claim to that title because they were a very talented bunch of people. And, and they were made up of a whole, a whole array of strong personalities. And hearing some of the conversations about the contributions of those personalities around the table and Keating's interplay with them um, over various policy issues was fascinating. With and, Keating and sitting there, and, and this was the great success that people, that his enemies as well as his friends accorded. The one thing that friends and enemies of Hawke united on was that he was a fantastic chairman of that cabinet. And an so interesting yeah. contrast with the Rudd cabinet, and this is not a point yeah. about Rudd, it's a point about the cabinet the cabinet secretary during some of that period, Terry Moran, who'd come out of Victorian politics, said that he was astonished when he came to the federal cabinet to see how timid the other members of that cabinet were. And interestingly, there isn't there are a few people in that cabinet who say that Rudd was actually a bad chair of the cabinet. Now there are lots of issues around the cabinet cabinet subcommittees, but that he wasn't he was a good cabinet chair. But Moran's point was the cabinet, unlike the Keating and Hawke cabinets were, were timid, which is a very strange thing for a cabinet to Sarah, tell say. Us a bit, sorry. Sorry, Sarah, tell us a little bit about, Kerry spoke about the Keating uh, interview. Tell us a bit about the process of, you've got them over the line, you finally it's the interview days. Tell us a bit, how many separate interviews were there? How did that all run? So the uh, interviews with Kevin Rudd took place partly in, uh, in Boston in the US and then we carried on uh, in, in Australia for the second half of the interviews and Julia Gillard was uh, in Adelaide and then briefly in Sydney. Now, the, uh, I met Rudd the night before our interview in Boston, and as I said, I was still nervous that he wasn't, wasn't going to show up, and I think he was, the purpose of the meeting was really to test whether my intentions for the series had changed. On the morning, he was quite relaxed. We sat in a cafe in a hotel, but somewhat in, this is a little bit Kevin Rudd, we were in a hotel in Boston, and the waitress told us not to sit where we were sitting because the cafe in the hotel was closed, and he sat there anyway, and she said... <laughs> We couldn't have any of the things that he wanted and he then went ahead and ordered all the things he wanted. And I, I remember looking at him and thinking, he doesn't know the effect that he has on people when he does these things. And he did something curiously that he'd... I'm, I'm going off topic a little bit, Lee, let me off. He, um, he did something he'd done when the, ver the very first time we'd met, which was the only time I'd met him, at, which was at Kirribilli House when he was Prime Minister, which is he takes out this little notebook from his top pocket. And when we first met, we were having an argument about the Reformation and he took out his little notebook and he wrote down, disagrees with Prime Minister. <laughs> Contradicts Prime Minister, <laughs> disagrees again. 
And I'm not easily menaced, but it was just very slightly <laughs> menacing. And he did the same thing. You know, so the waitress is clanging the plates around and he takes out his little notebook and writes notes. But I knew that those notes were really just to give an indication that this meeting was about that, when in fact it was really for him to judge how I was. It was, he's a hard interview because he combines, he, he can be P.T. Barnum, the great circus, circus entrepreneur. He can be, uh, he has the language and rhythms of the church. He can speak beautifully like a pastor. He can be an absolutely magnificent um, interviewee and he can be, as you both know, one of the worst. So his language can either be beautiful or turgid. So there are moments when he's trying to impart knowledge instead of having a proper conversation and that's when he gets difficult and then there are times when it goes well. It got off to quite a bad start because he wanted to control the interview. He wanted to be in charge of the rhythm of the interview. And as I said, I still had this slight anxiety that he wasn't going to come back on the second day. And so I let him go a little bit long and tried to find the rhythm. And though we got back on track and then there were other moments where, particularly when we approached the very difficult period, which I wasn't really looking forward to because despite what everybody says about the three of us and all of our col colleagues, we don't actually enjoy putting hard material to people. We know we have to, but I, like Lee and Occasionally. Kerry... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If, if they're just a right bastard. It's very socially awkward. It's very socially... It's definitely <laughs> awkward. <laughs> Reaching that See, point... See, no, neither of you had to interview Malcolm Fraser in his heyday. <laughs> That's true. And he and Goff were about the same height. <laughs> but for some reason, Malcolm was just that little bit... It was just awkward because he was a very shy, aloof person which some people took to be Malcolm looking down his nose at you, which he had to do, literally. Uh, but he really was Mr Easter Island to <laughs> now, interview. So this, this is the difference. So with, you know, Gillard, as I said, is so, so much more transactional. She's there to get, get through the interviews, I think, in a sense, to endure them rather than engage with them, which was her approach. With Kevin Rudd, he's already talking about his pain. He took one moment during the interviews when we'd spoken too much about the period of his removal. I think the difference is that with those people, they've reached the end of their prime ministerships. This is the essential difference. Whereas Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard cut each other off in their prime, if you like. So their, their, their life's ambitions, their life's work, everything that they had striven for to that point was lost, was cut down. So these are not people able to reflect on the full legacy that they could have, they believe they could have delivered, but something that had gone horribly wrong for both of them. And that pain that I talk about with Rudd, he does wear it on the surface, which is what makes those moments difficult. When we got to the period discussing his, his contribution, his role, his responsibility, the things that he had done wrong, his misbehaviour in 2010, all of his own failings, I went on for too long in the same vein, over and over and over again, putting more and more and more criticisms to him. And at that moment, the uh, rhythm of the interview, which you have to have, as you know, fell away and he went into the green room, lay down on the sofa and refused to come back. And at that moment, the whole thing, the whole series... And there, look, the, and there is pathos in that, isn't there? There is, true pathos. And, and, I, and I think too often uh, we find it easy and sometimes they earn, they earn the right, mm. but we find it too easy to throw crap at our politicians and to judge them all almost equally harshly. Uh, I think uh, it's important to understand... Uh, and I saw some of that same pain uh, in Paul Keating, uh, and this is 20-something years after his time in politics, and it was about reliving the moments. Mm. And, and don't for a moment think that all of this comes easily to politicians, particularly political leaders, the decisions they're taking, the way relationships uh, are tangled and untangled and fractured, um, not just with those friends and colleagues you have around you, but with the broader Australian public. Um, uh, the pressure that goes on a political leader in the decisions they have to take, uh, keeping their colleagues together, getting policy out, then having the responsibility to sell it and make it work and so on. This is their life. Families come second and anything else comes third. This is their life. And if they're successful at it, they live that life for 20 or 30 years. There is even the preamble to them getting into the parliament. There is a lot of pain for them to relive. I think the series that we made about Rudd and Gillard could have been made like every series in many different ways. Uh, people have very fixed views about Kevin Rudd in particular, but also about Julia Gillard. But 
I couldn't make a series with hatred in my heart. I had none for either of them. And I did have, uh, I think, an understanding of the pathos that you're talking about. I think it was unmistakable. Whatever you feel about their role, Kevin Rudd's role in his own demise, it doesn't stop him from being a human being. Mm. And I think it's more interesting if you account for that rather than go in just to cut him down. What about, you know, everyone remembers that press conference where he'd been knifed mm. and the pain that was so evident there. Um, do you sense the same level of pain uh, with Gillard or is it different? So she's such a fascinating person. That, that great warmth that she has is true and it exists. But as I said, she chose not to share it with this series. And I was sorry about that. Every now and again, I'd see a glimpse of it, either from her colleagues' accounts or one day in Adelaide before we started, she was with the makeup artist who'd come from Canberra, a devoted fan of hers, but she was doing the makeup and they were, she was choosing which jacket to wear for the interview. And I could see through the open door in the studios in Adelaide in the green room this great complicity between them and the, and the very funny Gillard that she can be. And I thought, I hope we see that on the television because I think people never saw enough of that in her um, television appearances because she could be very good, but often, as we know, on the national stage, and she would talk about this, that she found media very difficult. But she chose not to show that side of herself. It was a very transactional uh, relationship, the one she had with us. As I said, I think she wanted to endure it. And I kept trying, Lee. I tried everything to build a different kind of rapport with her to the point of complete absurdity. So one day in Adelaide, I just kept hitting this brick wall. I wanted something, I think, probably deeper and more personal from her than I was getting. And so I said to her, she said something, we'd said something about clothes, which is not something I would normally talk about, but I decided to have a punt. And I pointed at my high-heeled shoes and I said, these shoes are amazing, you should try these. Look, I can run in them. And I ran around the studio in Adelaide. <laughs> and... Well, what was I thinking? She's not like that any more than I am. And I came back to where she was standing and she was just looking at me as if I was, as I was, a complete goose. I'll have to, I'll have to remember to try that. Yes, <laughs> we'll um, swap afterwards. <laughs> We're nearly out of time. I just wanted to ask a couple of quick things. Um, Kerry, Sarah mentioned the rhythm of her interview with Rudd and losing it. And it reminded me, when I started at 7.30, you gave me some really useful advice, which was hard to understand until I started doing 7.30, which is you said, um, you have to remember that doing an interview for 7.30 is not the same as doing an interview for late line, and that there are different types of interviews. Um, tell us a little bit about how the interview with Keating for your television show differed to say how you would have interviewed Keating for 7.30 or how you interviewed Keating well, for late Keating, line? Keating himself uh, um, brought that up and, uh, and it was... He made, he made no demands uh, on the show but um, he, said, he said, I'm not interested in it just being a long 7.30, Kerry, you know, where you're going... Ah, ah, and, I, <laughs> and he said, uh, I said... I said, nor have I, Paul. I've got no interest in doing that either. Um, I said, that's not going to stop me asking um, questions that you're, you're not necessarily going to like. He said, oh, no, I'm, I'm not worried about that. He said, you can still be... He said, you can still be the tiger. He said, I'll be the lion tamer. <laughs> so um, uh, it had to be a conversation rather than a current affairs interview. And uh, But the trick, the trick of that, of course, is a conversation can be very discursive and chew up the time. And if you've ever been on our side of the thing, you'd understand in television, time is the great, um, it's the great killer. Uh, it's the thing that's always getting in our way, just like it is in this conversation well, it's, now. It's this, con it's this constant feeling of anxiety, like I'm starting to feel anxious because she held up the well, five-minute sign. It's like, oh, I'm anxious. I, I, I mean, in this case, of course, we, we, we recorded 16 hours for the four hours that went to air, which is not actually not a bad ratio for what we were doing. Um, but I had to jettison whole topics. I mean, I did not even think to go into media, uh, their media reform policies, uh, because I knew that uh, at most I might be able to give it two or three questions in the four hours, which would have been ridiculous, so I jettisoned it completely, and that was one reason that justified the book, because there was so much that we had to leave out. But you're just, you're just making those kinds of um, tough decisions all the time about... I mean, the, the recession. Um, ben Hawke, my EP, was saying, the recession, mate, he, he, he saw the, the question outline that I had. He said, do we really need to spend this much time on the recession? I said, actually, yes, we do. 
because it was one of the most important elements uh, and dynamics of their entire time in office and of Keating forever is branded as mm. the man who said this is the recession we had to have. Now, that was a, it was a hard decision to take because that, more than any other uh, part of the series and the book, goes into the real nitty-gritty of economic policy. And, you, you know, you imagine people wanting to turn off the minute they see you getting on the topic. And yet, I think that was one of the great successes of both the series and the book and one of the most important elements. It, it, it was a serious and real dissection of the elements that went into that recession, but more importantly, the thinking and the, and the debate that was taking place behind the scenes, uh, which would help the understanding of how it came about, how much of it might have been avoidable or not, and why, uh, why, it ha why they took the decisions they did. And insightfully for all of us, how much indecision there was behind the scenes. You know, these guys, they'll come out uh, they'll come out and they'll present themselves as being all-seeing, all-knowing. You know, they'll make a statement as if it's absolutely, un you know, uh, unchallengeable fact. But behind the scenes, just as people do around board tables or even if you're sitting in a family, when you're making tough decisions, often in the end it comes down to a very fine line between the yes and the no. And, and I've, I've often felt this about politicians. Yes, occasionally they'll be pilloried if they, if they actually fess up and say, well, really, I wasn't sure, I went this way, it was wrong, I should have gone that way. I think, done smartly, there are actually brownie points to be made. The rest of us are quite forgiving people if we understand what's really going on. Sarah, um, as well as the different types of interviewing, there are also different types of writing. There's writing for television news, for television current affairs, writing for print. Writing a book is a different thing again, and this is the first experience you've had of writing a book. How did, did you enjoy that process compared to making television? To, to how much I enjoyed it surprised me because I did it slightly, not out of duty, but I was asked and it seemed like a good idea because, like Kerry, you have so much more material than you can use in the same thing, in the same period. We've, we've got the global financial crisis that... In the period of Rudd's first government alone, the global financial crisis, the mining tax, health and hospital reform, the massive debacle of the CPRS, all of this deep, complex policy going on at the same time as this great contest. So, of course, with all the material that we recorded, there's a huge amount of material, material you don't use. And what happens at Four Corners normally, you make a 45-minute program on one of those things, and at the end of it, you take the plug out of the bath and all your knowledge drains away and you move on to something else. So to have the opportunity to sit down and think again more deeply about those moments and the relationships between those two people I found incredibly rewarding. And going back and revisiting the transcripts of the interviews, because, of course, in this series, it wasn't just Rudd and Gillard, it was all of the key people involved, including a couple of people in this audience, I've noticed. So to go back and revisit those transcripts, and I actually found lots of mistakes I made in that there were decisions I made because we make thousands of decisions when you make a, a long series like that, and I found material that I hadn't included, very good material that I was able to put in the book. So it was an utter delight. Not only did I find Rudd and Gillard and their colleagues fascinating, I found the story full of pathos and beautiful in its arc of great joy for them in 2007 and this great loss at the end when they lost power. So you've got this human drama and this extraordinary rich policy field. So sitting down and doing that again was just a thrill. Have you had any feedback from either of them, either for the series or the book? Not much. <laughs> <laughs> a little, a little. <laughs> they are both, uh, both your books are incredibly rich and interesting and I highly recommend um, both of them. We're out of time now, unfortunately. Kerry and Sarah will sign their books at the book signing thing. Thank you very much. Thanks Thank you, all of you too. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2016. You can find other recorded talks and discussions on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.